word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath, Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey. I'm echoing way too much. (laughs) I'm getting lost. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Today we're going back to Jonah. That's a surprise. Um, for you who have not been here, we've been working through, through Jonah for the last uh, couple of months. And there's just, even though it's only four chapters, there's an amazing amount of things. And today, you know, you've just said those words, forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, we say that. We've said it all the time, every single week. How many times we repeat the Lord's Prayer? It's about... We have been forgiven so mercifully and gracefully, and we are to forgive. And that's what the story's about today, and, and I want to talk about in Jonah. It's about doing justice. Three friends were discussing what they would like people to say about them as they lay in their casket. <clears throat> the first man said, I'd like them to say I was a wonderful husband, a great family man, and a fine spiritual leader. Second man said, I'd like them to say I was a wonderful teacher, a blessed servant of God who made a real difference in people's lives. When it came time for the third man, he said, I would like them to say, hey, look, he's moving. (laughs) I like that. It doesn't have anything to do with the lesson, but I like that. In our story, Jonah repented. He survived in the belly of the fish. He was washed ashore. He went to Nineveh, and he preached. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overturned. Now, to Jonah's shock, the people of Nineveh, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, and they repented. Now, people are often skeptical that God's word alone can have such power. Can God's word alone bring about such an extraordinary revival? In 1907, in January of 1907, a revival broke out at a Bible conference in Ponyang, 
now the capital of North Korea. Those at that conference came under conviction of sin, especially when the preacher began to tell them repent against their hatred for the Japanese. You know, while the Korean Christians had accepted the fundamental truths of the gospel, the message had not sunk in deeply enough for them to truly forgive the Japanese. Because of the cruel and oppressive way the Japanese had been treating the Chinese and the Koreans, they found themselves that they were morally superior to the Japanese. But in light of the gospel, the Koreans discovered at that conference that they stood before God as equal, sin, equally sinful and condemned as all other human beings. And yet, they had been rescued by the sheer and costly grace of Christ alone. And they were called to share that grace and that mercy. And this drained away their pride and their bitterness. So they returned to their homes with a new willingness to repent. And they, these people went house to house repairing the relationships that they'd had with the Japanese. And they returned those stolen articles. And the result was an explosive growth in the church in North Korea. And their worship services were suddenly filled with a whole new power of the Holy Spirit. God's word is that powerful. But what drives that word, what makes that word powerful, is faithfulness on the part of those who proclaim Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. The biblical gospel stresses two things. It stresses repentance from sin and the importance of seeking social justice in our world. They're like two legs of the same pair of pants. You don't put on one leg in a pair of pants, you put on both legs. And we preach a different gospel any time that we separate those two truths. You know, the unfortunate part is usually those people most concerned with social gospel or social justice speak little about personal conversion or God's judgment. On the other hand, those who preach about the repentance of sin most forcefully aren't usually demanding justice for the oppressed. God calls us to be people who learn to do both. Martin Luther King Jr., did not make the mistake of separating the call for social justice from a belief in God's judgment, the need for repentance. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, he responds to the question of how he can advocate disobedience, which is the breaking of some laws, and in this case, the laws of racial segregation, and still be faithful to the gospel. In answer, he simply said, because some laws are simply unjust. In Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, he didn't appeal to modern secularism and say, all should be free to define their own meaning and their own moral truth for life. He quoted Amos, Amos 5, 24. 
And he called for all society to let God's justice roll down like a mighty river and the righteousness like a mighty stream. We all have a legal and moral responsibility to obey just laws. But my friends, we also have a moral responsibility to stand against those laws that are unjust. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. So, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code or rule or law that squares with the moral law of God, with God's Word. An unjust law is a code, a law, a rule put together by man that is out of harmony with God's moral laws. When God says something is sin, friends, it is sin, regardless of what society declares. And when God says something is righteous, it is righteous, regardless of what society may think. And in love, and in love, we are to stand against what God stands against, and we are to stand for what God stands for. And my friends, that is how we, how the church reflects God's righteousness in the world. We are to be God's bastion of hope and grace and love and justice in this world. Jonah preached the message of judgment against Nineveh with glee, not with tears. He wanted desperately for God to drop the hammer on the people of Nineveh. But then God responded with grace and mercy. When God saw that these people forsook the evil that they had been doing, and they relented from their social injustice. He delayed judgment. Immediately, Jonah is thrown back into absolute despair. Because Jonah believed, at least to some degree, that mercy and grace had to be deserved. And by golly, the Ninevites did not deserve grace and mercy. Although... Jonah believed that he did. After all, he was a Jew. He was one of God's chosen. Jonah couldn't see what many people today can't see, that he and we are all sinners just like the Ninevites, and each and every one of us is in need of God's grace and God's mercy. God says to the Ninevites, they're spiritually blind, and they don't know their right hand from the left. Now, God had threatened to destroy Nineveh because blindness and ignorance is no excuse for evil, not the evil they had been doing. And yet, God chooses, chooses to show remarkable compassion and understanding at their repentance. And that's great news. 
There is no sin that is not forgivable except the unpardonable sin, which is to deny God's truth. It's to call light darkness, darkness light, to call God's grace bad and the world good and whatever you want to say. It's to deny the power of the Holy Spirit to move in your heart with truth and the gospel. Anything else is a forgivable sin. And if you're willing to repent, God is always graceful and merciful. And that's an amazing, that's an amazing amount of good news. When people look at people today who are kind of in a spiritual fog, who have brought their own trouble into their own lives, you know, we tend to look at them and say, you know, it serves them right. So I'm right. You know, there's no cure for stupid. You know, but you know why we do that? We do that partly because it allows us to detach ourselves from them. And we do that out of pride, and we do it partly because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. God doesn't do that. Real compassion is the voluntary attachment of our heart to others. God has voluntarily chosen to feel our pain, chosen to feel our grief, the very things that are caused by our own sin. And then God chooses to die for our sin. That's grace. That's mercy. God who needs nothing. God who is completely comfortable, joyful, happy in the Trinity chooses to attach himself to us to experience our pain and our grief. Thus God could say to Jonah, I'm weeping. I'm grieving over this city. Why aren't you? You see, if you're my prophet, Jonah, if you belong to me, why don't you have my compassion? On the cross, Jesus Christ said to those who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Jesus is not saying that they're not guilty of wrongdoing. They are. My friends, that's why they need forgiveness. That's why we need forgiveness. And you know, all you can really do is just look in wonder at such a heart. Heart of God. A heart that if we understand the gospel has now been planted in all of those who belong to Jesus. You and me. God has planted the heart of Christ in each one of us. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be given a new nature. We're given the very heart of Christ, the very mind of Christ, the very Holy Spirit of God now lives in each and every one of you who has confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Do we have the compassion of God? Do we have the grace and mercy to offer those from the grace and mercy we have received? 
Here's a spiritual principle that you can take to the bank. Whatever God values, we are also to value. Amos 5.24 says that God values holiness and justice and love and righteousness. And so should we. In Hosea 6.6 and in Psalm 51.6, we read that God rejected the sacrifices and the worship of Israel. You know, people sometimes think that Israel just went astray and they got forgotten about God. They never stopped offering their sacrifices. They never stopped worshiping God. They never stopped going to the temple. They just stopped being the people of God. That's a scary thing. You see, you can continue to go to church. You continue to do all the things you've always done. But you can stop being the people of God. You can stop doing what's really important. You can stop being people of holiness and justice. People of love and righteousness. God doesn't want sacrifices. He wants you. And he wants you to be who he calls you to be. Because worship means nothing unless God's people are seeking to be whom he calls you to be. People of holiness and righteousness. C.S. Lewis once said, sometimes we can become so heavenly minded that we become of no earthly good. True worship is to be able to see the divine and the sacred in every single person in the world. Not just every single person who is seated next to you, in front of you, and behind you, but every single person you ever meet has been created in the image of God. And that image is sacred. It's fallen. It's fallen and it's lost. And that's why they need you. Because God has put in each of you the heart of Christ to be Christ to the world. And true worship is to be able to see that divine, sacred nature that has been lost and, and jaded in each and every person and to offer them grace and mercy and forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, while it's true that we are all wretched sinners saved only by grace through Jesus Christ's death on that cross, Think about this. The good news is that Jesus Christ loves each and every one of you so much that he went to that cross, and he went to that cross joyfully. That's what, that's what Hebrews says. Jesus went to the cross for your sins joyfully. Why? I love the phrase of Max Lucado who once said, Jesus decided he would rather go to hell for you than to ever be in heaven without you. You are that precious to Jesus Christ. My friends, such is the wondrous heart of our God. May that heart also be in us. Amen.